0: difficult to keep the line between the past and the
1: present. you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living
2: being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with
1: us.
0: Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky
2: and Scott Tobias.
0: On the first half of this episode, we discussed Steven Lisberger's 1982 film Tron, in which a programmer is dragged inside a computer to take a symbolic video game journey alongside programs resisting an evil master computer program. In this episode, we'll consider a film based on a book that was heavily inspired by Tron. Ernest Klein's 2011 bestseller Ready Player One also features people entering a video game and fighting the man, but in very different ways and with a lot more controversy. Recently, Vox.com featured a piece by Constance Grady called The Ready Player One Backlash Explained, which tried to pick apart how Klein's Ready Player One went from being considered a fun, largely celebrated, largely positively received novel about pop culture to being decried as an annoying exercise in empty nostalgia. The book has become kind of a shibboleth online, a love-it-or-hate-it experience. People don't just have strong reactions to it, they often turn those reactions into deep-seated emotional stances. They identify with the book personally and resent people who don't like it, or they hate the book and get angry with people who defend it. Grady makes an interesting argument that the watershed moment for the book was Gamergate, the online movement that exposed the deep toxicity, entitlement, and anger within certain segments of the video gaming community. After Gamergate, she says, attitudes like the one that produced Ready Player One are no longer in vogue, and its content is no longer approachable as light entertainment. Some of this resentment is certainly sloshed over into Steven Spielberg's big-screen adaptation of the book, which changes a lot of the particulars of the story, but largely respects it in terms of its broad plot parameters. In both versions, the world populace has largely retreated into a virtual reality universe called the Oasis, where they can live out their fantasies and escape their problems. The Oasis was created by a man named Holiday, who upon his death turned the place into a giant puzzle based around the 1980s culture that fascinated and obsessed him. Whoever solves his puzzle and wins his quest will gain complete control of his vast inheritance and the Oasis itself. The protagonist, 18-year-old Wade Watts, starts to crack the puzzle, which puts him on the radar of an evil corporation run by a man named Sorrento, who wants control of the Oasis for himself. This scenario was heavily informed by Tron, but also by Ernest Cline's favorite culture in general. In the book, clues based in Atari games and console games, in movies like Back to the Future and Ghostbusters, and in the music of acts like Duran Duran and Rush, are the key to literally owning the video game world. Klein wrote a story where even in the 2040s, people are still obsessed with a specific nerd culture of his childhood, the things most near and dear to his heart. That is an awkwardly naked fantasy on her part, but it looks very different on screen, where Spielberg has brought in elements from later decades and fandoms, and even from his own movies. And the screenwriters, Klein and Zach Penn, have tweaked the story so it's less about rote memorization of 80s ephemera and more about exploring holidays, regrets, and life lessons. The film's better at discussing these feelings than actually letting them play out convincingly as part of the narrative, and similarly, it makes some attempts to acknowledge the dangers of living inside a fantasy, but it doesn't actually embrace those ideas at all. We've got a lot of thoughts on the controversy, on Ready Player One as a film, and how it works in comparison with Tron, and we'll get to all of that after this break. Three keys Three hidden challenges
1: test for worthy traits, revealing three hidden keys to three magic gates. And those with the skill to survive these straits will reach the end. Where the prize awaits. Let the hunt begin.
0: So Ready Player One, uh, to start with, you guys, I guess, have both listened to the audiobook. Mm-hmm. So you're, yeah. you're at least you're familiar with the original content. Yes.
2: As read by Will Wheaton, of course. <laughs> Who else could possibly be the, the person reading that book?
0: Yeah, I, I did not have the Woolbeaten experience. I read it as an actual paperback uh, not long after it came out. Like we we got a copy of it at the AV Club. I had it sitting around on the shelf, and when it it took off hugely, I read it, and I remember enjoying it at the time. When when did you guys experience it?
1: Mine was probably about five years ago, so a little pre the turning point that Constance picked. Out in that essay you mentioned at the beginning, there. The extent to which his book came controversial took me by surprise because I just did not have a super deep engagement with it when I listen to it. Part of it may have been because I did listen to it in audiobook form, like on a road trip while doing other stuff. So Mm -hmm. like I wasn't like super engaged with elements of it that have stuck out as problematic to other people because I really just engaged with it as a story that is a, a quest narrative, which is something that I tend to really like. And that is hugely about world building, which is something else that I tend to respond to in fantasy stories and speculative fiction stories in in particular.
2: Yeah, I had the same experience. I think I was inspired to listen to the book based on Todd Vanderwerf's review of the book in The A.V. Club. And I believe he gave it an A. I think he was a huge fan Mm -hmm. of the book. I'm curious about what his thoughts on, (laughs) on book and film are in the year 2018. But I found it, you know, shallow, sort of awkwardly penned, and yet, you know, kind of irresistible. Book. I felt I was being pandered to, and I and I liked it.
0: Yeah, I mean, Scott and I are both about the same age, so you know, we're we're both looking back on that culture as the culture of our childhood, much like Klein's And I
2: mean, and again, it's that irresistible idea. As I mentioned in the first segment with the last Starfighter, of just like. All this useless crap that i've accumulated <laughs> in my brain, all these experiences that are you know sort of junky pop culture experiences that i've had that can be that 's the key to the universe you can I can be a half trillionaire if I want <laughs> I can own this incredible virtual world because I know all of this stuff, so there is something to that that is irresistible and very much in keeping with the fanboy nature of Klein, who of course wrote fanboys so
1: uh, real quick, I just have to defend the honor of my coworker, Todd Vanderwerf, who did not write the AV Club Review, Kevin McFarland did, oh. and he, he is the one who gave it an A. Really? because Todd wrote a piece for Vox recently about how Ready Player One is a bad book so that he hopes will be a good movie so I have oh, to make sure wow. that I didn't like, that is... <laughs> miss some really oh, crucial okay. due diligence okay. there. I thought, I thought,
2: no, he did not revise that. Oh boy. I'm sorry to Todd. Who doesn't listen to this, right? No. but, uh, we'll but uh,
0: He'll never know.
2: Let, let, let don't Todd, tattle let on us. Let Todd know for just a moment that he was on the record as giving this book an A but in fact he didn't like it all along. I don't think you can make it. it one, you know, one thing that it reminds me of, Ready Player One in its itemization of stuff, you know, you'll have pages and pages of just lists of like uh, all of this 80s pop culture. It's like American Psycho, right? Isn't that, isn't is isn't that? <laughs> that what, comparison has that the certainly book? been made. Oh, it has been. Okay, some of the first, but right. here's the thing I hadn't about heard that. it before, Scott. Oh, thanks. You seemed, you seemed impressed by yeah, that. At I liked least. it. And you were like, whatever. <laughs>
1: I don't
0: know. First, I for me, that's the first well, thing anybody brings up.
1: For, Reference for me, gatekeeper, it's not,
0: Tasha not <laughs> For me, it's just not, it's not a. Very good analogy because in in American Psycho the book you have these segments that are basically just like blithering at great length about eighties culture, but it's meant to be satirical. It's meant oh, to sure. be indicative. No, no, of no,
2: no. I mean that's that's the, the only emptiness thing they of his life. There's a huge contrast between the two between how the they use it. Yeah, I mean because Klein is like his name. It's quite earnest <laughs>
0: <laughs> he is he is an incredibly earnest man. Yeah. I saw him at South by Southwest and i it's interesting I really understand the people who feel that the book Ready Player One is an exercise in empty nostalgia that it's just citing these things in order to cite these things and it doesn't bring any further depth or analysis or value to any of them it's just a bunch of lists and partially that's because I think it's a kind of clumsily written book. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you see him in person and his earnestness is pretty extreme. Like he really is a super enthusiastic fanboy who just loves these things. And I actually, (laughs) before we started recording, I referred to him as Ernie Klein and Genevieve laughed at me and said something about how Ernie and I were on a first name basis. But I I was initially familiar with him as a standup comic who did stand-up it's about geek culture and about his enthusiastic fanboying and about how rough it is to be a super geek because you have no social graces whatsoever. You want what you want. All of his, his stand-up uh, album is available in its entirety for free on his website uh, <laughs> okay. com. Yeah. So you can go listen to that stuff. Uh, the album is called Ultraman is Airwolf because the title piece is basically just him ranting about how incredibly cool Airwolf was and And what a great fantasy it was to have your own helicopter, your own super helicopter, and how such and such is Airwolf was like his point of comparison for something that's super cool. So he's a big dork, and he knows he's a big dork, and he's honestly pretty sweet about it. At the same time, I can see why people object to the book, and I can see why people have a a difficult relationship with it after his second book Armada which a is a, a really blatant and kind of cheap rip off of last starfighter uh-huh. and b posits a world in which as you say knowing all of this stuff makes you a superhuman but in the, in this case in the case of Armada being a video gamer lets you go fight aliens and save the world like in last starfighter and Ender's game but also means that the entire world like bows down to you and caters to you and gets you your favorite foods and and breeds a special strain of weed just for you and (laughs) on and on and on with like just it's a very masturbatory fantasy i'll put it that way Mm -hmm. here's my thing about the movie i felt that the movie improved a lot on the problems with the books in part because it replaces the pages and pages of list making with simple images Mm -hmm. and, and images in action I thought the action of this movie, there are a lot of problems with this movie, but I thought the action of it was pretty impeccable. And I briefly mentioned
1: the piece that Todd wrote for Vox about how Ready Player One is a bad book that he hopes will be a good movie. He obviously wrote it before seeing it. And that was specifically why he posited it could make a good movie, because all those lists of references that can become really obnoxious on the page can just fly by in quick visual, whatever that you can register or not however you like so i felt the same way about the action of this movie like when i think about this movie i basically think of the three quest set pieces and everything else just kind of fades into the Hmm. background watching this movie felt like the scene from matilda where the kid has to eat the entire chocolate cake you know (laughs) (laughs) like it just it felt like i was just being force fed (laughs) chocolate Um, cake and like the references are the frosting on top of the cake (laughs) you know it often felt like too much of a good thing but in those set pieces that Spielberg is so skillful with, like, that is when I felt the fun of the film and the the energy and the heart of the film. And the changes it made to the book in order to, I think, make that nostalgia feel a little less empty in terms of sort of tying the nostalgia to the life of James Halliday and his regrets and his humanity. Like, I get it and I kind of respect it on a formal level, but it just didn't stick with me it felt like kind of empty calories
2: yeah me too I, and I, I think there was a diminishing returns thing for me in terms of the quest i mean I, I, the first one with the cars and everything that, that's all terrific yeah stuff. and
1: in the in the, the first that's specifically true in the case of the first two challenges mm. which diverge completely from the book the third like big boss-level challenge is more or less the same as how it is in in the book, as I recall.
2: Yeah, and it it just gets to that point where it's like you're just making up things as you go along in terms of what the rules are to get through this particular level. But what I did cherish about Ready Player One, particularly in the beginning, I I think it begins a lot stronger than it ends, is that Spielberg wit, which is that ability to drop a reference, in this case there's lots of references, or just, you know, just a little image or a joke or or something, he's just so fleet of foot with all that stuff, none of it lands too heavily, and this is a film that, you need that because this is a film that is going to overwhelm you so much with the visuals and with the effects that it's good to have that kind of deafness of touch that Spielberg displays in, which I don't think is that present in Klein's book. So in that respect, I feel like the film is an
0: improvement. Yep.
1: It also just expands the reference points in a way that feels very specific to Spielberg. At Tasha's request, I will not spoil the specifics of the second quest, but that does feel like it's mining a vein of nostalgia that feels more specific to a Spielbergian version of the story than a klein version even though i know klein co-scripted yeah
2: and he he can't really do self-homage too much either i kind of compared spielberg making ready player one to like led zeppelin you know uh, covering a led zeppelin tribute band (laughs) you know (laughs) it's like that kind of absurd an idea i mean he's like both the perfect person and the only person who could do this and then also it's beneath him so. To
0: to some degree, okay, as far as the beneath him thing goes, like Spielberg so I saw this at South by Southwest. It, it's it's public premiere. Mm-hmm. Um, with a a incredibly rowdy, packed theater that seats something like thirteen hundred. Mm-hmm. So it was it was a big theater full of people who were all over it. Mm-hmm. Spielberg was there, and he got a screaming standing ovation when he walked out. Klein was there; he got a screaming standing ovation oh when my. he walked out. Which, <laughs> being in a world where Ernest Klein gets the same kind of reception as Steven Spielberg, really told me where, where that audience was coming from. Mm-hmm. But uh, in the Q and A afterwards, one of the things Spielberg said was that he never set out to put references to his own work into this film. That Klein and, and Zach Penn did a little of that, and then the animators did some of it. And some, and it came as a complete surprise to him. So things like sticking a gremlin into the movie, uh, there, there are there are other like visual references. Those were things that the animators threw in as jokes. Like hmm. he he claims that the whole, for instance, throwing in the Jurassic Park dinosaur was entirely the screenwriter's idea. Hmm.
2: Which is not even an eighties reference, though I guess. Well, neither is King Kong. So.
0: Well, neither is the Iron Giant, which is you know has been hugely foregrounded in the the trailers and is a, a big part of the movie. Neither are a couple of other things that I don't want to reference. But there are
2: things that Warner Brothers owns.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's just it. My I, a little bit of disappointment with this movie. I think on some level, I was kind of hoping for it to be a like a huge Who Framed Roger Rabbit crossover. And it is blatantly stuff that we could get the licensing for yeah. as Warner Brothers.
1: Yeah. Like there's a moment pretty early in the film where like you're in the Oasis and you just get a mass of avatars, you know, and it's like a where's Waldo moment, you know, and like looking at it, it feels like it should be like, you know, this scene on the lot in Roger Rabbit or to cite a more re- recent reference, uh it Ralph. Ralph. Yeah. Like it feels like it should be that sort of just like cross section of cultural references and like, at the moment, I wasn't able to register like the variety of what we were seeing there, mm-hmm. but it definitely didn't have those standout moments that you got in Roger Rabbit or Wreck-It Ralph of like, oh, here's these two characters interacting. Isn't that fun? You know, mm-hmm. it was just like a mass of
0: characters, Yeah. which I'm fine with. I mean, I think the freeze framers are going to go over this film with a, a mm-hmm. fine tooth comb yeah. for a year, and I'm fine with the film not spending too much time foregrounding that. I did think. You, did one you see?
2: So I'm sorry to because I wanted to make this one. Did you see Abraham Reisman's uh, rundown of all the references <laughs> in in Vulture to, in this film? It's pretty extraordinary. It's so freaking long. I don't know how he could do it. I don't know how he sat there and was able to make a list that must be like forty or fifty films and books and video games it's incredible no I was
0: really avoiding that before I saw it and now maybe I should maybe maybe that I'm ready for a second viewing I should seek it out but I didn't necessarily want that picked apart before I saw it I wanted Mm -hmm. to to watch the story, sure. and that kind of gets into one of the other ways I feel like this film improves on the book is that it feels less about regurgitating all of that stuff. it feels less about i mean there's there 's a point in the book where somebody has to recite all of Money Python on the Holy Grail to unlock something
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> and this movie thank goodness doesn 't do something like that it It has people navigating familiar cultural objects, um, yeah. but they have to find their way through it in a way that feels a little more organic. I think one of the reasons that last quest falls a little flat is because it is just kind of a rote regurgitation of something a lot of us know already and something that they draw out at great length. Whereas the first two are more about like being in the moment and navigating through this world, this experience in a way that just that feels a lot more intense and intimate and, and interesting in a way.
2: One thing I will say though is I don't think, uh, I mean, maybe you don't have scenes is potentially excruciating as them reenacting a scene from Monty Python and the Holy Grail, But I'm not really convinced that the replacement for that, which is much more about Halliday and his failed relationship. I don't feel like any of that's necessarily better or more resonant either. I just, I don't think, I don't know if either one really would have worked.
0: Well, I think that the holiday thing that we get in the movie comes closer because I think there is a resonance there In the idea that this man has regrets and he wants other people to learn from them and like identify with him. He was a very lonely person in life. And I think his his avatar his to go back to Tron of the little bit of his spirit resides in this thing that he's programmed. Mm. I think it's trying still to make connections with people. And I think that that's sort of what happens at the end of the movie is that by understanding his regrets, Wade comes to understand him on a level that nobody really Really did in life. And I think that that doesn't sink in as well as it should. It doesn't have the emotional power that it should because the takeaway from that is you need to make human connections and not spend so much time in video games. But like 99.9% of the, the movie is a celebration of aren't video games. Cool. Isn't (laughs) this virtual world cool? So it's kind of, it feels like uh, Judd Apatow movies to me. It's like 99% about like men cutting up and behaving badly. And then in the end we pay some lip service to, Oh, but we got to grow up eventually. And that's good. We guess.
2: Well, okay. Well then what about that world then? I mean, what about the actual world? Because, uh,
1: You mean the real world? Yes, the real one.
2: Because we get to a point where, hey, we're going to take Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're going (laughs) to shut down the Oasis, and now you guys are going to get to spend some time in the glorious place that is... (laughs) You know, this
1: is to, this just topic right, society exactly, exactly. The, so, that we so, haven't on, really walk around, enjoy, walk around <laughs> yeah.
2: and enjoy the, the all the uh, the stacks and all the and uh, all the human misery on display, because that's going to be better than being too wrapped up in this virtual world. What did you all think of that?
0: I think it would have more resonance if not for a couple of things. One is that we don't really see any of it play out. We're just told about it, which is a bad way to tell a story that you want to have any kind of impact One is that, in theory, this is a story about a bunch of, like, young scrappy people who love video games versus a bunch of, like, old cranky people who hate video games but see how that could be profitable. Mm. And, you know, and in the end, it's meant to be a good thing that, like, the kids that love gaming and understand the Oasis get a hold of it. And then they promptly take away everybody else's agency and choice by saying, we've decided that this is the moral way to play video games and you're going to do it our way. The third thing is what that plays into visually is the romance and the the male and female protagonists ending up together. And the love story is the weakest and most gagsome part of this movie in a walk. So the fact that we're meant to celebrate the two of them canoodling two days a week is just so, so not in any way impactful or emotional or useful for me. Such
2: a disappointing uh, end to our Olivia Cook <laughs> <laughs> double- <laughs> series, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Olivia Cook series, <laughs> not to have that uh, part of the film be as weak as it is. One last point I wanted to make was Spielberg's role as d- director of this film, because it is you know it does celebrate this blockbuster era, which he was a central figure, and it's interesting to see him wrestle openly with that legacy by making this film. I mean, there's a degree to which he is, you know, a 70-something director trying to return to the spirit of these earlier films, these exciting, uh, audience-friendly blockbuster films like Raiders of the Lost Ark. But then there's also a part of him that is wrestling with the corporate behemoth that all this has resulted in and, and, and his role in bringing that into the world. So, I mean, did you think about that at all when you were watching the film about about what Spielberg's motives might have been and and what sort of conflicts you know he brought into to the table by just so we by directing this thing?
0: I mean, I did because I I think this was before the movie rather than afterward. But at South by Southwest, he got up and he said, just with pure and obvious excitement, like I just I want you guys to understand that this is not a film. This is a movie. And I I swear I was too bar- far back to throw things at him, but I felt like throwing <laughs> things at him. I mean just uh God, if anybody should understand that you know films can be art and still be fun, that films yeah. can be like engaging and exciting and still be like quality, thoughtful entertainment, it's Steven Spielberg and the idea that he's still trying to split the world into you know films which are you know serious. The and- post. And mm-hmm. his film was the
2: post, and then his movie is Ready Player One or Tintin, or just like just like the, you know his film was Schindler's List, the year that his movie was uh, Jurassic Park. Yeah, I uh, I just <laughs> I
0: hate that he not only thinks that way, but expresses that thought in a way like you know everybody should understand the distinction. We and should agree go to my him.
2: distinction, which is that <laughs> if you recall, <laughs> where a film is something that is shot on celluloid, and a movie is anything else.
1: I, I hate how often I I stopped myself from saying film because of that's scott
0: i 100% blame you i thought you wanted to call them like digis or something (laughs) i don't
2: want to call them digi i'm just saying you know if you're going to use the word film make sure to challenge celluloid which of course spielberg still does so everything he does a film he was, he's wrong to characterize his, his film as a movie.
0: I didn't think about the degree to which he's created a giant corporate behemoth that he's mm-hmm. trying to escape from yeah. because he came across as just such a an eager and excited fanboy making something for eager and excited fanboys and much well like with Ernest Cline like I believe in his his earnestness around this like I believe that he does still have a boyish quality to him that is just is really into into culture and into thrill rides and the, you know this movie is a thrill ride
2: so he's more holiday than what's the character that ben mendelson sorrento was? he's more holiday ha- than sorrento in your opinion
1: no i think he'd be simon pegg's character yeah yeah because
0: yeah. uh, you know holiday is uh, like a sad man who can't connect with anybody and mm. i don't believe that about spielberg oh, that's, that's interesting yeah. ogden morrow
1: he's oh, Ogden Morrow Ogden Morrow.
2: <laughs> who can forget I did I did I did, I did. For- completely forgot Simon Pegg until you Ogden just Morrow mentioned
1: plays a much bigger role in the book as I recall he's just kind of like floating around the edges of the movie here yeah. to, to sort of serve as that middle point that is kind of where the film ends up
0: Well, we probably could just sit and talk about Ready Player One for a couple more hours, but that is not the conceit of this podcast, and nobody likes three-hour podcasts. So why don't we move into connections? We'll be right back after this break to talk about the links between Tron and Ready Player One. This is the Oasis. A whole virtual universe. You can do anything be anyone without going anywhere at all the oasis was created by james halliday and what he left behind changed everything a contest three impossible challenges the first to finish gets complete control of the oasis which means complete control of the future contest has got to be about connecting with someone Connecting with the world. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. These are both stories about people entering video games, and what struck me about both of them in relationship to each other is that they both are about the larger adventure of some very basic video games. I mean, you can, one of the things that I, th- I find fun about that opening race in Ready Player One is you can see what the video game would look like, and it would be Visually similar But it wouldn't be immersive In the same sort of way And you can see When you watch Tron Like what the Light cycle game Would look like In part because They put the Light cycle game out (laughs) You can see What it would be like To play these games But both films Are about putting you Into the middle of them In ways that feel Very meta to me Because they're like Trying to create Sort of the headspace That you're in When you're really Immersed in a video game I just I find that interesting I'm not sure Whether either Of these films I think Ready Player One is very pro video game despite making yeah. a certain amount of noise mm-hmm. against it does tron have an opinion on whether video games are are good or bad are either of these films like manifestly about like the effect of video games in the world
2: i wouldn't necessarily say the effect of video games but the thought of living in a virtual space is something that both films are concerned about and both have different attitudes about because that idea is so new in Tron in the early 80s of uh, it's such a strange idea to even be in this space whereas currently in the year 2018 when we spend so much time in the virtual world or at least in the internet world and on our devices and, and we're so comfortable in our relationship with machines there could be the idea of an oasis of this play of a place transcendent or, or or better than the one we're in being built there's an appeal to that it's such, such a natural thing for us to engage in in a way that wasn't true of tron
1: one thing that interests me is how both films inject stakes into these video games well like a certain like human stakes like because it's not real you know mm-hmm. but in both tron and ready player one Real damage can be done to you of a sort in this video game world. Obviously, there's de-rezzing in the Tron world, and then in Ready Player One, you lose basically your your Bitcoin and your you know yeah. your all <laughs> all, the, all the things you you can lose those zero out you zero things. out as what out is what they mm-hmm. call it. So like it's like injecting the idea of life or death stakes into a realm where life and death
0: doesn't really mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that Tron kind of plays the like if you die in a dream you die in real life game Mm -hmm. like people literally are risking life and death i think ready player one the whole idea of zeroing out might have a little more impact if we had any idea what the real world looks like. Like in Tron, the real world is where you go back to. The real world is the real world. It has actual like weight and importance. In Ready Player One, the real world is this sort of like vague hand-waved away dystopia. Uh, There's kind of a line at the beginning about the bandwidth wars or something like that. But other than that, we don't really know what it's like for most people. And that's actually another reason that the whole living in the real world on Tuesdays and Thursdays doesn't have much impact for me. If it had something to do with like, and then we, We sponsored a resistance movement to fight back against some of the corporate shenanigans that we see going on on those Tuesdays and Thursdays. Like we're going to use those days to improve the world in some way. You might have a sense for what the the quote unquote real world stakes are, but as it is, only the virtual world in Ready Player One feels like any kind of real. Well, I mean,
2: the the stacks give you some indication. I mean, any view we get of the outside world in in Ready Player One suggests that the world has deteriorated quite a bit and we we could probably read into it that we've got some sort of a Nefarious corporate rule thing going on because you have this c- yeah. company that is uh, enslaving people. To yeah, I mean, there seems do its, to be do its work.
1: there yeah. seems to be the suggestion of like extreme income inequality that mm-hmm. plays out obviously in the stacks and also in these sort of forced labor centers where people like are trapped by their debts, basically, um, whether monetary or That's otherwise. Right. What, do call, what do they call those uh, loyalty, the loyalty centers? centers. Yeah, the loyalty centers. Yeah, these loyalty centers where they're forced to work off their debts, monetary or otherwise. And based on that, like we do get the suggestion that gains you make in the Oasis can be transferred onto the real world. We see that when Wade is able to, when he picks up his new suit Mm -hmm. in the real world, you know, with the money, the coins that he gets from the first quest. So, like, there seems to be some sort of insinuation that success in the Oasis can potentially transfer onto success in the real world and allow you to rise up within this extremely oppressive society that has extreme income inequality so it doesn't like suggest that the oasis has the means to fix whatever is wrong with the society but it potentially is a way for an individual to succeed in that society
2: paul ryan's gotta be like this looks this this like looks, looks a great place it's got like <laughs> you have these little corporate uh, debtor prisons this is wonderful <laughs> um so uh yeah it does it doesn't seem so great to me well, i mean do you ever get like a like a shot a single shot where prosperity is suggested in this, uh, in this no uh,
0: but uh, i mean to me one of the kind of one of the most telling bits of the film is towards the end wade rallies real world people against the corporate evils basically mm-hmm. and it is meant to be a rousing emotional moment but it is immediately proved it effective and completely <laughs> undone. He also rallies people within the cannon Oasis. Fodder. Yeah, well, they refuse to be cannon fodder, but as a result, they're completely ineffectual. And it just, it feels weirdly dispiriting. Like they're they are actually saying, you can rise up and resist all you want. Like one dude with a gun can shut you all down. He rises, raises people up in the Oasis and eventually, like once his people have done what they need to do, it is effective and it is important. And that just sets up this weird dichotomy where it's like, Eh, What you do in the real world isn't important. What you do in a video game, though, that matters. I want to move on to uh, one of the things we said we were going to talk about was kind of how both films reflect the concerns of their era. And I think what we're talking about now ties pretty heavily into that. I think it's interesting that Tron is more concerned with... People having their agency taken away by computers and Ready Player One seems a lot more concerned about people having their agency taken away by corporations.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's still an absolute comfort with the idea of operating in a virtual environment and, and maybe that's a better thing to do. So so then once you've established that, then the concern becomes what is going to happen to our virtual environment if it falls into the wrong hands and we have to be subjected to ads or whatever (laughs) is happening in the film isn't that the big threat it's like oh my god they're gonna buy this out and then i'm gonna have to like can't you know you know click out of a bunch of pop-up ads
1: i guess like one thing to consider and that the ready player one movie doesn't really flesh out fully enough for us to consider it based solely on the movie, but I think the book at least is good about establishing how much of the real world does take place in the Oasis. Like, people go to school in the Oasis. Like, all of human interaction takes place mm. in the Oasis. It's not really just escapism and in, in entertainment. You know, it is the real world because there's nothing in the real world to engage with anymore. So, like I said, I don't think... The Ready Player One film draws that out enough to make it stand as a thematic, you know, point. But if you have that background from the book, I think it's it's maybe easier to draw that out from the yeah, movie. It would have been good if that would have been included. I, I, I kind of would have liked to have seen an Oasis school. I remember that specifically. It's one of the things I remember from the book. And we just didn't get it here. Snowpiercer
2: or something.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, apart from uh, Lena Waithe's character, H, who works as apparently works as a delivery person, there's not really any sense that anybody else in this film has a job. Mm -hmm. And it's not clear whether that's because everything is terrible and they're unemployed or they're just going off to their like 16 hour a day job in between scenes and then, you know, coming back to not sleep and spend the rest of their time in the Oasis. There's just sort of that, again, lack of connection with reality or anything that has a weight in a way that just plays very oddly for me.
2: They're young. A lot of them are young, mm-hmm. They're not really of working age.
0: I mean, Wade is 18 and is desperate to not be living in a trailer owned Probably. by his aunt and her terrible boyfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Who yeah. also don't appear to work you know
1: yeah
2: i mean unemployment is probably quite high in this world and
1: honestly like i don't even though we see h like driving around that delivery van like i didn't necessarily take that to mean that h was a delivery person in the real world so much as like just got her hands on a delivery van like i think what as far as h goes like we see that h like does a lot of repairs like or is a kind of a mechanics whiz in the oasis Mm -hmm. and like i interpret it to me as like H makes money in the Oasis by doing this sort of thing. And whatever she is doing in the real world, I guess I should call them they, mm-hmm. <laughs> given the Avatar real world uh, Spo- gender div- divide. Mm-hmm. But um, so I, I guess I took it as like H's Oasis activities were how they were supporting themselves.
0: Hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense, but that
1: may have just been me bringing from what my knowledge of the book into yeah,
2: it. Yeah, right. I mean, I mean, had the had the film incorporated more of that everyday life, going to school type aspects of the Oasis, then maybe it all makes
1: sense. Less awesome races, more, more. everyday drudgery. <laughs>
0: <to our> <laughs> I yeah. demand a, a deleted scene where H spends ten minutes doing Wade's taxes <laughs> and explaining why his aunt is not a dependent.
2: Isn't, isn't it such a kind of an older person's thing to emphasize? the need for time away from (laughs) devices and electronics. I mean, (laughs) I I mean, I certainly do that all the time with my kids, uh, while completely ignoring (laughs) a director for myself, but like maybe that's just Spielberg, you know asserting his maybe that's the parents you know, I I think it's just list. a
0: lame bit of lip service because they needed it to have a moral at the end and it's not a moral that the film or seemingly the characters believe in at all
1: Well I'll also, also just to kind of bring Tron back in briefly it, it's just kind of reflective of where we are as a society now or we were and where we were not as a society in 1982 in regards to our connection to electronics like Obviously, that's not an aspect of Tron at all. the The idea that being too connected to your electronics is potentially bad thing. It's bad because it happens against Flynn's will, but. It's, and
0: because it puts him at the mercy of the master
1: control right, program. yeah. But, but it's very, like, circumstantial. It's specific to this one individual story, not to the society at large.
0: I gotta say, he rolls surprisingly well <laughs> with the idea that he's been turned into a yeah. program. <laughs> Much like we get thrown into the deep end of the pool at the beginning of the film, he gets thrown into the deep end of the pool, and he does not play the stupid fantasy game of, this can't be happening, I don't believe this is real, I'm going to stall the story for 10 minutes while I... Try to process this. He's just like, okay, well, you're a program. I'm a program. Let's let's go with it.
2: One another thing I, I would say about Tron that might be reflective of you know the concerns of the era is um, just that fear of what a computer is capable of doing. Mm. Um, it's capable of if it gets to a certain point, it can learn. It can far exceed what we know and are capable of doing, and it can grow beyond our ability to control it i mean and that's central to war games as well is that at a certain point the computer is going to take over and it's going to cut off any access that that humans have to it and it's going to cause real world damage and i and i think there's a, some of that terror over the decades has if not faded away as is evolved as as we've gotten much more used to to dealing with machines
1: well the the version of it that we get in ready player one is anxiety about surveillance like Mm. you have the facial recognition drones you know everywhere which are facial recognition surveillance is already a thing like in china like they're using it to give people jaywalking tickets (laughs) in china (laughs) you know and then add in drone technology and the concerns we already have about our just our data and our information being free floating and accessible like it definitely plays into this dystopia the glimpses we do get of it in ready player one
2: and that's a minority report theme too mm. oh yeah, you know, yeah just sure. walking of walking through a space and then having advertising directed uh, specifically at you and you know having the real problem of being identified and marked every single step you take
0: And, I mean, Minority Report was also concerned with facial identifying drones Mm -hmm. that could, you know, just crawl up your face and scan you. I think that both of these films are also very concerned with corporations, with control, uh, basically who controls art and who controls our entertainment and whether our entertainment is primarily for entertaining us or for making somebody else money. It just it feels like both of these films are obsessed with that on a basic level. To some degree, though, I feel like that comes pretty sharply out of Ernest Cline just duping Tron. Like, I, I feel like Sorrento as a bad guy is just straight out of the David Warner playbook. Mm-hmm. I really like Ben Mendelssohn's performance, but I just think everything about that character just feels like a clone of something that happened in Tron.
1: If you're talking about the connection between Sorrento and the master computer version of Warner, like I, I say, but, but Sorrento, like, doesn't really answer to anyone the way that Warner ends up answering to the master computer. Like, it, it's sort of... And them, although I guess in the end he does like he's not above the law. There's still like some semblance of oversight happening.
2: The law still exists, which is kind of surprising uh, because there's no indication that that. True. Well, and,
1: and it like it shows up at the very last possible minute in Ready Player One, so it's it, it kind of goes back again to just sort of the fuzziness around the society and like where how much this corporation can get away with. Like, we don't know about the government; we don't know the extent to which. There is oversight of IOI, and it's I mean, all a little that, isn't confusing. That, isn't that
2: how authoritarian regimes tend to fall anyway? Yeah. Once they're usurped, the uh, person in power is, has to uh, be held to account.
0: Also, if you want to be cynical about it, the point at which Sorrento gets arrested is after Wade has won, and therefore is a half-trillionaire. That's true. And as we all know, rich people get a different justice system than poor people. And at that moment... Everybody in the world apparently knows that Wade is now incredibly rich and powerful, and somebody less rich and powerful than him can, can be taken off to jail, even if he was comparatively rich and powerful a minute ago. Technically one-fifth of a trillionaire.
1: <laughs> they split, they split the true. trillions five That's ways. That's
2: true. It's, uh, uh,
0: you know, they, they, they might go that route, but you know a It's
2: like a junta. <laughs>
0: Oh, my God, it's a gunta Hunter. Oh, well done. <laughs> Okay, I, I'm not ever going to top myself on that. So I'm just going to ease gracefully out of this whole conversation. Tron is available on DVD and Blu-ray and on various streaming services. Ready Player One is probably going to be in theaters and under discussion for quite a while to come. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast we call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what has been good for you lately?
1: Well, I want to recommend something that I suspect will interest Tasha, who in 2014 wrote a piece for her Movie This Book column on our much-mourned <laughs> film site, The Dissolve. Uh, that piece was called Why the Dynamism of I Kill Giants Belongs in Animation. Uh, Tasha, your wish has been half-granted, because Joe Kelly's 2008 comic series is indeed now a movie, although it is live-action, not animation. But I'm so going to recommend it in part because i really love the i kill giants comic and this is a solid adaptation scripted by kelly himself and in part because i think the film's visual style actually serves well a lot of what you wrote about in that piece Uh, for those who haven't read it i kill giants is about a young girl who's been aged up to a teenager in this movie who has taken on the role of protector of her small town against the omnipresent threat of actual giants a threat that is seemingly apparent only to her Uh, I don't want to say too much more because the nature of Barbara's relationship to the Giants is the heart of the story, and probably my main criticism of this film is that it telegraphs that relationship a little too loudly too early. But I think it still mostly works despite that, in part thanks to the casting, which sees Madison Wolf taking on the pretty tough role of Barbara and more or less acing it, with an assist from Imogen Poots as her older sister Karen, Zoe Saldana as the school psychiatrist trying to get a handle on Barbara's behavior, and Sidney Wade as Barbara's only friend. Sophia, uh, if you can't tell from that list, this movie passes the Bechdel test and then some. Uh, there's really not a single male character of consequence, uh, unless you count male giants. But the other thing that really struck me about this film was its look under the direction of Anders Walker, who's previously only worked in short films, uh, including 2013's Helium, which won him an Oscar. I Kill Giants is actually somewhat reminiscent of the look of that short, blending a sort of glowy storybook fantasy quality with a more down-to-earth realism that serves the story's coming-of-age aspect, with some hyper-stylized moments that skirt up to the edge of horror. Uh, Some of the comic's more fantastical elements have been done away with, but the movie makes good use of what's clearly a fairly limited budget regarding its CGI giant action. That limited budget may have to do with the fact that this film is not, as far as I can tell, getting a theatrical release, despite being pretty darn cinematic all things considered. Uh, But the upside is that you can easily check it out now from the comfort of your own home. It's available for digital purchase and rental pretty much everywhere, and I'd recommend I Kill Giants.
0: Well, the only reason that I also was not going to recommend I Kill Giants for this is that I was just on Pop Culture Happy Hour, where Ah! uh, (laughs) they also wanted me to talk Ready Player One, which we did. uh, We I don't think there's much of any crossover between our conversation here or there but I in fact brought in uh, I Kill giants on ah. the what's making us happy uh, <laughs> oh. thing at I the was end. wondering if you'd caught up with it yet. I actually saw it at Toronto last year. Ah. Uh, I reviewed it out of Toronto and I interviewed the uh, the director as a matter of fact. So
1: <laughs> I feel bad for like completely missing all of that. I'm sorry Tasha. Oh, you're a, you're a... <laughs> fine.
0: You're uh, you've not yet missed the interview with the director because I haven't posted it yet. Ah, at okay. the point where the podcast comes out it should be up at the verge.com. Uh, but it is not at this moment but uh yeah i I was actually really pleased despite having written that piece about how it, it had to be animated to work I was really pleased with both the like the visual beauty of the film and just kind of the narrative invention Joe Kelly the author also wrote the script and I think the additions that take place I think you're right that it it maybe telegraphs a little too much a little too early but I found it really interesting as just a process movie watching Madison Wolf's character walk around and live her life kind of in the shadow of these giants. Mm-hmm. And I think the movie does some really interesting things. I think it's it's pretty gorgeous and it's very emotional. It's interesting that it came out at the same time at least in terms of festival release as A Monster Calls, which it resembles narratively quite a lot, thematically quite a lot, and that movie got bought and released rather quickly and did very poorly so i'm really hoping that this one does better uh, i enjoyed both of those movies i would give this one an edge a little bit i think
2: i did not love a monster ball, so i don't know if i'm the audience for i killed giants or not maybe, maybe it's
0: entirely possible not yeah. david ehrlich loathed it well he had
2: yeah. a, he had a conversation this week with the director did you see no, that he had,
0: a con- he had that conversation at sundance because i talked to him about it he okay. like he had that that breakfast with the director immediately after having tweeted about a, his loathing of it Yeah, that ran
2: on IndieWire wire this week it was a kind of interesting piece
0: yeah it reminds me a little of uh roger ebert savaging the brown bunny <laughs> and then eventually yeah. sitting down with vincent Gallo, like literally sitting down to a meal to kind of hash it out yeah It's a a weird sort of comparison. Well, apologies to David Ehrlich, but I liked it and so
1: did Tasha. So we win. Scott, what about you? That is two to (laughs) one. Um,
2: Well, I wanted to recommend a movie called Lean on Pete, uh, which is the new movie by Andrew Hay, who we talked about in this podcast for his last film, 45 Years. He also did Weekend. And uh, one other thing we talked about in this podcast was Foreign... Filmmakers coming to America and showing us something we don't usually get to see. And uh, uh, American Honey was a good example. And this is another really great example of Hay coming to America and showing us a vision of the underclass. I mean, this is Lean on Pete, is about a boy named Charlie Thompson, who's a 15 year old, played by Charlie. Plumber uh, who li- lives with his dad. Uh, they they don't have a whole lot of money to scrape together for anything. His dad his dad is more into swilling beer and betting women than to really taking care of his son. His mother abandoned him, etc. And, and like a lot of boy and his horse type of stories, um, the horse he attaches himself to Pete, who he discover who his trainer is uh, played by. Uh, Steve Buscemi is, a, is a kind of a big metaphor for abandonment, um, and his own feel feeling of uh, of abandonment. But this is a film that that's got a, a really large scope to it. Um, it has um, some beautiful performances uh, by Buscemi, by Chloe Sevigny, and and by Steve Zahn, who, who turns up a little bit later on, and and of course by Plummer himself, who's this fifteen uh, year old who starts in it living in a sort of a hand to mouth situation, but then things get worse. It's almost like Windy and Lucy, but on a larger scale where he just does not, he's in a state of such desperation and such a need to kind of survive and move forward that he's not able to process uh, the tremendous trauma that he ends up absorbing along the way and um uh, it's just a beautiful film uh you know i I think andrew hayes just gets better and better in terms of his gifts as a filmmaker his gifts as a writer have been evident from the start yeah so this is kind of working its way around i mean it's been compared to the 400 blows i think that's a probably good good comparison yeah i just i I just find this film deeply felt and unsentimental and uh yet yet extremely emotional so I, i i love it lean on pete
1: so does this mean you're giving up your quest to have us do a lean on Pete pairing on this I think Well, I, I think I, <laughs> which poor I, Scott keeps getting shot
2: down. I know on, I guess, mainly it, by me. it is. It's, it's my. It's it's like me trying to call things uh, the royal. It just gets shot down. <laughs> um, so uh, so yeah, I think. Uh, you know, plus, there's other. There's there's another really great horsey movie coming up mid month called the rider that maybe maybe that, maybe that has a chance. To get. Scott's
1: going to start a horse movie spinoff podcast.
2: We really do. There's so many now. The horse so many picture good ho- show. I know. And so many, we'll puns. call it
0: the Royal cause nobody will be able to stop him.
2: <laughs> the puns too. Oh, the horse puns that, that oh. I could, uh, May I say, nay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've been. I, I don't know. I, I felt like I reined in Whoa the horse. Whoa, both puns. of you. Okay. The horse puns. In Rain this, it in. in this, uh, uh, but I, I think you know. I, I don't want it to sound like it's this oppressively bleak film, even though it is filled with sadness at times. It's also about resiliency, and and it's just got really great specific character detail, and it's another really soulful. Performance by Stu Buscemi and Chloe Sevigny is wonderful. It's just a, it's a, it's a beautiful piece of work. So uh, please, please see "Lean on Pete." You didn't see this at Toronto, right? I did not. Okay, well, you, you should. You're gonna see it now, right? Yes. Like
0: right now? I think no, I'm going to finish this it. podcast okay, first.
2: But you're going to see it. You all, you have to see it. Uh, Tasha, what about you? What do you got?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm fairly fresh back from South by Southwest. So my movie seeing over the past couple of weeks has largely been limited to films that I enjoyed a lot that – in many cases are still waiting for pickup. So I don't know when they're going to be out, but it's, it's left me without a lot of recent releases that we haven't already talked about to recommend. So I'm going to punt and go with the most obvious low-hanging fruit imaginable. I think that if we're talking about Tron and Ready Player One, you got to finish the trilogy with Wreck-It Ralph. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of think that anybody who's listening to this podcast has probably already seen it, but if not, you're missing out on a real treat. I think that as movies that take place in video games go, go it's a very small subgenre wreck it ralph i think most nails both the feeling of gameplay a really wide variety of gameplay from serious in-depth action games to like fun little candy colored childhood racers to mini games to old style stand up console games a lot of different ways of engaging with the virtual world. Unlike Tron, which has people unwillingly dragged into the virtual world. Unlike Ready Player One, which has people living there as a way of not dealing with the real world. Wreck-It Ralph is naturally about about native game characters. So it has a very different angle on it. It does have that crossover Roger Rabbit kind of feel to it that we're lamenting not getting a little more of in Ready Player One. But All other considerations aside, it's just a film that I enjoy so much for the sheer rambling nature of its plot and yet the sheer tightness of its narrative. This is a film where there are no such things as throwaway lines. There are a lot of gags. There are a lot of little side trails. There are a lot of seeming uh, diversions off the main plot and they all become relevant. It's got some really incredibly good voice work, most notably I think from John C. Riley as the protagonist slash villain uh, and from Alan Tudyk as a, <laughs> just a goose Character like heavily modeled over a classic Walt Disney character. But in the end, what brings this home for me is both the effectiveness of its emotions, including in a, like a set piece that still makes me tear up almost as much as the end of Iron Giant, where Ralph, the protagonist, has to be an adult in a relationship with a, a small child character when he, neither of them wants him to be. And it, it's really painful. this is just It's a beautifully designed film. It's a beautifully executed film. It's emotive. It's cleverly put together. It's as good as a Pixar film and that's about as as big a compliment as I can throw out there
1: yeah uh, wholeheartedly second that have you seen the trailer for the sequel yet I have are you I'm excited okay good Because I was excited like too. Some of my
0: coworkers were like, ugh. And I was
1: like, why? I'm really it, excited It can for be, it? <laughs> it, it's, an, it's a
0: really interesting phenomenon where when something that you really wholeheartedly love gets a sequel, like I was a little afraid at first to watch the uh, trailer for The Incredibles 2 because i love that movie so much Mm -hmm. and it's like when you love something so much that you want more of it but you're terrified that they're gonna screw it up yeah like both of those films kind of fall into that place for me
1: i'm excited for it so i can hopefully finally do my vanellope von schweetz halloween costume (laughs) that i have wanted to do forever but i feel like people won't get it this far removed from Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, my so. gosh.
0: There are some uh, there's some amazing Wreck-It Ralph cosplays out there. Uh, the ones that have impressed me most have involved uh, the little candy racers, and they come complete with cars. Like, people like wearing toy cars around. Yeah, I'm
1: not going to do that,
0: but I will put candy <laughs> hearts in my hair. Yeah. How in the world are <laughs> people going to even recognize myself, what you're doing? I haven't
2: put myself in any situations where I've encountered any Wreck-It Ralph cosplay. And people.
0: <laughs> oh, you haven't been on the internet? You should try going oh, on the internet. Right. It's a internet. lot of fun, oh, and it you might get, you sucked, you might get sucked in, though.
1: So be I careful.
2: Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs>
1: check out completely.
2: no internet on Tuesdays and Thursdays. No, in fact, in fact, you know, we're very close to me signing off for for, for a full twenty four hours.
0: All right, you guys, it's it's time to, to turn it off, and then we'll we'll turn it back on again uh, in a little bit. And that's it for this week's edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next episodes come out April 17th and 19th. Genevieve, what are we discussing?
1: The controversies over the setting and cultural appropriateness of Wes Anderson's new stop motion feature Isle of Dogs have somewhat overshadowed the film's more positive qualities, particularly the complexity of its animation. The film takes place in a dystopian future version of Japan, where a corrupt leader has exiled all dogs to a trash covered island where they're haunted by plague, depression and their own memories of connection with humanity. But when a young Japanese boy lands on the island looking for his lost dog, the story shifts to a more familiar mode as the dogs try to help him find his friend, evade the authorities, and ultimately escape the prison where they're trapped. The emphasis on resourcefulness and personal connections, the sheer dedication to craft, and the dry humor all reminded us of an earlier movie about plucky animals trying to escape certain death, Ardman Animation's 2000 stop-motion feature Chicken Run. It was the first feature-length film for the studio behind a series of beloved, whimsical, Oscar-winning claymation shorts, including the animal interview piece Creature Comforts and the Wallace and Gromit stories. Chicken Run is also about imprisoned animals pitted against cruel humanity, in this case the residents of a chicken farm trying to kludge their way out under the wire before they get turned into chicken pot pies. Both Isle of Dogs and Chicken Run feature humans as important characters, but they're told largely from the perspective of the animals, which often have more personality than the people. And both films are about complicated escape attempts in the long tradition of the prison escape movie. Next time on The Next Picture Show, we'll look at the animal perspective and see how two different animation directors, nearly two decades apart, use it to communicate their ideas about the human condition.
0: In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Tron, Ready Player One, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days, Scott?
2: Well, you can find me on Twitter at at Scott underscore Tobias. And you can find my work in such places as the New York Times, The Washington Post, UpRocks. I did something for Keith uh, recently. Um, uh, You can find me at Variety. I've been doing a lot of Variety stuff lately, NPR, of course. And um, I'm also the editor-in-chief of the Oscilloscope Musings blog, Genevieve. Oh uh, wait!
0: You can also find Scott Tobias at TheVerge.com. dot oh, com. did, I yeah, did. Yeah, we, t- we talked about it last week when <laughs> you were in here. The, I
2: did. I did do a review of Tomb Raider for <laughs> for <laughs> the Verge. Uh, that uh, an essential review of an essential film <laughs> by me. <laughs> which I was very excited to work with Tasha again. Genevieve, what about you?
1: Uh, you can find my work at the culture section at com, including a couple pieces that we have cited on this podcast that I edited. You can also find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha.
0: Uh, You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. I am the film and TV editor at TheVerge.com where I get to hire people like uh, Scott Tobias who is a uh, a pretty good writer who I would highly recommend if you (laughs) Uh, uh, need a a review of a not-so-great film that
2: That nobody on staff wants to cover.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That nobody on staff was equipped to cover with the uh, thoroughness and uh, talent that I would expect from one Scott Tobias. (laughs) Uh, Lately, you can also find me, let's see, talking about Ready Player One Pop Culture Happy Hour. I'm going to be talking about Ready Player One over on our parent podcast Film Spotting. You're going to be able to find me uh, talking about Lord of the Rings on the Lord of the Rings Minutes podcast. You're going to be uh, hearing a lot of me on podcasts uh, around this time. And uh, hey, I'm also going to be on uh, Shining 237, talking about two minutes and 37 seconds of The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You're going to be seeing a lot of me all over the podcast world over the next uh, several weeks, and I'm getting a little tired of podcasting, so I'm about ready to shut down. But we would be remiss if we did not mention our absent co-host, uh, Keith Phipps. You can find him on Twitter at kphips 3000 and you can find him at uprocks.com, where he heads up the film and TV coverage. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, we would appreciate it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts enough prominence that they can find more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every review and rating. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keeps the show going. And hey, it gives us a little boost. It's like a game achievement. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jake's for his assistance in producing this podcast, and thanks to Delmark Records for providing recording space in their home base, Riverside Studios. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts and the Panoply Network. Please tune in next time.